0: Hi, this is Kieran Pender from the International Bar Association and if you want to improve your communication skills, you need to be listening to the Art of Communication podcast with Greg Rice.
1: Welcome to the Art of Communication, where entrepreneurs learn to grow their business more effectively through mastering their ability to connect to others. Whether you're looking to increase revenue, widen your network, or just getting others to buy into your vision, we'll help you dramatically transform your business and life by communicating more effectively, improving your leadership skills, and reinvesting time back into your family. You're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and your life, so let's start the conversation with your host, Greg Rice. What's
2: up, guys? Today, I'm sitting down with Kieran Pender. Kieran is a senior legal advisor with the International Bar Association. But in that role, he's led some really interesting research titled Us Too, which focuses on sexual harassment and bullying in the legal profession around the globe so across a variety of different cultures it was based on a huge global survey that they did um, they've put together some really great findings but also some you know some challenging findings as well that I think we can learn a lot from Um, And then interestingly, he is also a freelance journalist for The Guardian doing a lot of reporting um, around different sports around the world. So he's a pretty uh, amazing guy. And we talk about a lot of different things. We get in depth about the research and what he learned and about how sexual harassment and bullying is actually quite prevalent around the world, regardless of culture. We get into how culture impacts those challenges, right, and how it looks maybe a little different from region to region, but then also the interest in discussing it and, and making improvements against it from region to region, and we talk a good bit about the importance of learning how to be a good leader and learning how to communicate well. Because often these things aren't Harvey Weinstein-like sexual harassment issues. They're, they're things that are maybe going unnoticed by the person who's communicating because they're not sensitive to how the person they're communicating with is responding to the way that they are uh, talking to them. So we get in-depth about that. It's a really interesting conversation. So for me, it was just a really eye-opening discussion. And hopefully you walk away with a lot of practical tips about how leaders can create a more inclusive overall work environment. So, Kieran, welcome to the Art of Communication podcast. Really excited to have you on today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. I think we're going to get into a lot of interesting dynamics, especially around things like sexual harassment, inclusion, and specifically how communication relates to those topics, and interestingly, how it's different from culture to culture. But I'd love by just starting off by having you give us a little bit of background on all the research that you've done and some of the key takeaways, and then we can kind of build our conversation from there.
0: Fantastic. We'll look forward to that discussion. So I'm a a policy lawyer with the International Bar Association, which is the peak global body for lawyers. And uh, following the Me Too movement in October 2017 and building on some research we'd done on the barriers that women face uh, progressing within the the legal profession, we undertook a global survey in 2018 on the prevalence and impact of bullying and sexual harassment uh, within law. Across the, the whole spectrum of law, so law firms, in house, courtrooms, judges, etc. And in May 2019, we published that in a report called "Us Too," uh, and the findings were pretty grim. Uh, we found uh, one in two female lawyers and one in three male lawyers had been bullied at work, and uh, one in three female lawyers and one in fourteen male lawyers had been sexually harassed at at work or in work related contexts. Now, those numbers. Uh, would be unacceptable and are unacceptable in any profession. But in a profession such as law, which is sort of really predicated on the highest ethical standards, uh, those numbers are simply not okay. And so subsequently, we set out on a a global campaign to try and work with our many stakeholders to achieve positive change.
2: That's great. And those are grim stats. Uh, So a a couple thoughts, I guess, one around bullying. Like how was bullying described? Because that can mean so many different things. Yeah, exactly.
0: So we, we deliberately, uh, we wanted to, we didn't want to be too prescriptive. We didn't want to give definitions to people because if, if you're feeling bullied or harassed, that that's a problem. Now, obviously, there's a legal definition in some context, uh, but we're not talking about, you know, have you been sexually harassed within the definition of, of you know, the, some legal statute in your particular jurisdiction, um, if if you feel that way, you know maybe that's not a legal wrong, but it's still not okay that you feel that way. So we ask people a, an open-ended question: Have you been bullied? Have you been sexually harassed? We then, if they said yes, provided them with ten examples to try and sort of categorise their conduct, and there was also in other boxes as well. So trying to be as broad as possible, but I, I guess the bullying. Yeah, I mean, it it fell on a spectrum. At, at the extreme end, we had stories of physical violence, you know, assault. At the the less severe end, a lot of the bullying that we saw in law, and and I'm sure in in other professions, uh, related to supervision. And and I guess that's where you know communication skills come, you know, are, are so critical here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way we communicate with our colleagues, particularly if we're supervisors, and the law is a very hierarchical profession. The way we communicate with each other, particularly when there's a power imbalance, is so important. And I think, you know, as our findings show, not a lot of thought, not so certainly not enough thought is given by many members of the profession to the way they're communicating with their colleagues, and that's causing all sorts of problems. And I love your point that both
2: sexual harassment and bullying is... Um, I guess, in the eye of the person suffering. And if they're feeling it, something's wrong, whether there's a clear definition of, hey, this is it or not. If you're feeling those things, then that's an issue. And a lot of that comes back to communication and the way that we talk to each other and understand each other. I'd love to hear, I guess, some of the recommendations. I don't know if we're ready to get to the recommendations yet, right? But as you're thinking about how you're teaching folks to communicate more effectively, what are some of the takeaways
1: there?
0: Well, I think the first part is is just being more self-reflective on a day-to-day basis. So I think one challenge we have in achieving positive cultural change in organisations and in professions is that when we hear these words, bullying, sexual harassment, mobbing, we think of the really severe end of the spectrum of behaviour. Mm-hmm. Th- those are the thoughts that come to mind. So when we hear sexual harassment, you know, we think of you know, it's someone groping someone. When we think of bullying, you know, we think of someone screaming at someone or throwing a file at them. Now, obviously, that's not okay and that does happen still, unfortunately, but, but most of this behaviour is not that. It, it's at a less severe end of the spectrum, but that conduct can still be equally, if not more so, damaging, particularly as it's often a course of conduct that builds up over time and, and has a really damaging effect. But, but I think the problem, because we associate these labels with the serious end of conduct, we don't reflect on the extent to which we could be perpetrating this even if we don't realise it. It's yeah. very easy to say, I'm not Harvey Weinstein, but, you know, because I, I'm not a sexual predator like that. It's a lot harder to, to, to think about whether the way we communicate with our colleagues and our peers on a day-to-day basis might make them feel uncomfortable. So uh, over the past, uh, you know, 18 months as part of this campaign, I've presented thousands of times to, to lawyers all around the world. And at some point in my presentation, I always say to these rooms of lawyers, no one here thinks they're a bully or a sexual harasser. But if we reflect on it, honestly, at some point in our career, probably all of us has made someone feel uncomfortable you know, whether that's because you're stressed and it's late at night and you've got an, a, an angry client and you say to one of your juniors, you know, get this done now, you know, stop, you know, and, and maybe you use a few expletives. You know, that's bullying. It's not the worst form of bullying and, and, and the next day they might be fine and everyone moves on. But, I think the, f- the first step is all of us need to go through a bit more of a journey of self-realisation and self-reflection as to the way we sometimes act, even if not deliberately. And, you know, and I always follow that by saying that doesn't make you a bad person, you know, that you get stressed sometimes. I mean, obviously, I guess sexual harassment's a little bit different there. You can talk about that separately. But certainly with bullying, you know, that you get stressed and maybe lash out at a colleague once in a while it doesn't make you a bad person but it does mean that you're doing something that's making someone else feel uncomfortable and you need to think a lot more uh, about how you are dealing with that.
2: I think in general, most people don't spend a lot of time thinking about how their communication resonates with whoever it is they're communicating with, um, just in general. And it's something I certainly need to work on. I think all of us do. And if we can do it well, we'll be much more effective communicators, but we'll also start, I think, to see these underpinnings of, are we being too aggressive with folks or are we speaking to somebody in a way that's making them uncomfortable? I'm curious.
0: And I, th- I think in this COVID era, when we're not necessarily in person, that becomes so much more important because mm-hmm. a lot of the the nonverbal cues are being missed. And you know, because we're relying on email more, you know, I think we need to th- Often we probably need to write a little bit more because by being very abrupt and short in emails, even if we think we're just trying to be brief, we can cause people to worry. Again, I think it all comes down to that power imbalance. And in in a profession that's as hierarchical as law, if your partner at a if you're a law firm, you're a junior, your partner sends you a, a a one line email, do this you know, you're going to stress out. I mean, that, that's mm-hmm. not necessarily bullying, but, but if they do it all the time and it starts to build up to a pattern where you feel psychologically unsafe at work, then bullying or not, it, it, it's a problem. Um, you know, just being a bit more descriptive about when things are due, you know, what's the urgency, you know, what, what sort of, what, what do you need, you know, it's, it seems really obvious uh, even just you know not sending emails at, at 10 p.m. at night i mean i'm guilty of this i you know i work in a global setting i'm i'm often on and emailing at, at random times pre covid was travelling all the time emailing my colleagues at, at at crazy hours i think we all need to think a bit more about you know how how that interaction impacts people and you know that's not necessarily bullying sending someone an email at 3 a.m. That's not bullying. But it all adds up and it all has net potentially a negative impact on someone. And and it's that sort of everyday incivility that can can become a problem.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I know that I've I've been in sales and really client relationship management roles most of my career. And a lot of clients like almost seem to have different personalities in email versus on the phone or in person, right? And the email can come across as very brusque and sometimes rude and to the point and then you get on the phone with them and they're much warmer than you expected. It's interesting. And and to the other point, I can tell you that, you know, I've worked for bosses or I guess leaders who I know are rather i guess aggressive in dealing with certain things right or like if if you share a thought that they don't agree with they're very strong in their disagreement and it really limits my ability to be creative in those situations it limits what i bring to the table it limits what i might present to the client because i'm worried about how they're going to respond to it and they've taught me over time that you know they're not really open to this creative thinking and that has an impact but i'm curious if as you've talked to leadership on on these topics do they tend to I mean, so they probably understand there's a general problem, but do they typically, when they think about themselves and they reflect, are they like, well, I understand that I need to change or is that, is that maybe not something they have to drive home a little
0: bit more? I think that the feedback and the response to our campaign was broadly positive. There was a broad recognition. So after we published our report, we, we held um, events, public, private meetings, et cetera, in, in 30 cities across six continents, uh, across between last May and, and this March. So, you know, met with literally thousands of people, uh, thousands of senior leaders of the profession. Broad acceptance, there's a problem and a lot of work already underway at a whole lot of levels in terms of contributing to change. And obviously, our our work isn't the first work on this subject. In different countries, there's been more and or or less work on on the subject. And so this is a, a work in progress. And there was, you know, sometimes you saw denial and and I would go into a law firm and they'd see the data and I sort of could almost see the thought process in their head of the law firm across the road must be really bad because we don't have any of this here. (laughs) And obviously, you know, data doesn't lie. However, you know, mostly at at senior leadership level, really good buy-in. You know, one one person that, that we worked closely with, the global senior partner of one of the biggest law firms in the world, you know, he would, I, I saw him present to his staff alongside me on a number of occasions and, and he would sometimes say, you know, he's managed 200 people in his career and and he'd be an idiot to, to think that the statistics didn't apply to him in some way. Now, obviously, again, no one likes to think that they're a bully, but, but the, the numbers just don't lie. And so I guess, you know, that's the first step the next step is how do you implement that change across the entirety of your, in this case, very large organisation? And I think it's one thing for senior leaders to get on board, but they're not the ones operating, you know, they're not the ones managing on a day-to-day basis um, because often they're so removed, they're operating at such a high level. So the next step, I think, in operationalizing this change is, is the sort of the line managers. So in, in law, that's often the senior associates and and the junior partners. It's it's those people that need to be um, taking these messages on board and responding to them.
2: I think mean, to a large degree, we just need a shift in in how we do leadership, right? Um, across the board, across, not just in law, but in in many aspects of life. And it's a fascinating topic to think about how. We need to improve the way that we communicate with each other, especially those who we're trying to direct to achieve goals together.
0: And, and particularly in law, uh, in private practice especially, lawyers are promoted upwards because they're good lawyers and they bring in a lot of money to their law firms. Uh, leadership skills, management, supervisory skills for a long time weren't really recognized mm-hmm. or valued or trained. People just got promoted upwards because they were good lawyers and suddenly they had to manage. Now, we're beginning to see across the profession more investment in leadership and management. But but I guess in a way, it's not surprising that we have these challenges um, because leadership and management is hard and it's not something that a lot of humans are naturally adept at. And yet we've been throwing these people in the deep end, and they've probably been learning a lot of bad habits because they've experienced this stuff themselves. I mean, a really recurring comment on the global journey was people saying, "Well, I went through this, so my juniors should too." You know, I mm-hmm. I was yelled at in front of clients. You know, that's part of being a lawyer. That's how you toughen up. Uh, and you know, that attitude. Uh, I mean. I think it was it was never right, but particularly in the modern era, you know that's not an attitude we can abide
2: agreed, agreed now tell me a little bit about the term everyday inclusivity and and what that means.
0: I guess that's continuing on this theme about bullying and, and harassment not only being the more severe end of the spectrum of conduct, but about being that everyday stuff, so it's the the negative comment in the lift or it's the slightly sexist comment or it's the Know, the 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 being a bit aggressive with the red pen and and taking feedback beyond what's reasonable and and, and laying into someone. You know, th- those are all examples of not being inclusive on, on an everyday basis. Um, you know, of course, you know, supervision management, the law is a stressful profession. Sometimes you know, these things happen. But the idea of everyday inclusivity is that we need to try and practice these values every day because if we don't, Not only does the everyday incivility have a negative impact on people, but, and and to quote from the US um, Equal Opportunity Employment Regulator, it's also a gateway drug to to more serious incivility. If if, if as a workplace you allow that culture to persist, often that will lead and allow and permit more serious misconduct to occur. So, you know, that's a real problem. And that's hard having these conversations about what does everyday inclusivity look like, you know, in terms of using inclusive language every day, in, in, in being positive, you know, smiling, saying hello, stuff that sounds really dumb and really basic, but, but actually can, can make a, a huge impact. So I think that's one aspect of this. And, and the other is we don't achieve cultural change from the top down. L- leadership is really important and leaders need to be on board and role modelling. But we also need to have buy-in at every level of the organisation. And, and so often I think these campaigns to achieve cultural change are you know, emails and speeches from senior leaders that don't really engage all levels of the organisation. So you know, to, to give one example, a, a law firm in New Zealand that I met with, there was a big harassment scandal in the New Zealand legal profession they scrapped their harassment policy and got every single member of the firm to contribute to a new policy. And this is a firm of maybe 400 people. took a long time to, to have 400 people on a committee to draft a new policy. <laughs> but they said at the end, you know, the policy looked nothing like what they expected, but every single member of the firm knew what was in the policy, had ownership of it, and had really bought into this cultural change process. And, and so I guess that's what I mean by everyday inclusivity is is being inclusive with inclusion, not just having this led by a, a head of D&I and the managing partner, but but every single member of the firm being an ambassador for the values that you want your firm to be living.
2: Yeah, I, I think I have, a, I guess, one overarching thought there is that we're not at a place in society and culture yet where this happens by itself. It, if you just leave it alone, it's going to go in the wrong direction you need to put a lot of effort towards how do you build a culture that helps deal with these things appropriately. But then also as part of that, how do we motivate and train and teach and equip everybody throughout our organization to do it, not just a leader saying, hey, you should do it. And that's a completely different conversation. So that's really interesting. Now another part of this that really fascinates me is kind of the global aspect of it, right? So you dealt in many different cultures around the world. And I think there's a couple different levels we can talk about there. One is how does sexual harassment and bullying look different from one culture to another? Or how is it more accepted, less accepted? You know, there are different degrees of it across the world
0: our research found that broadly speaking this is a problem everywhere so there wasn't you know there were variations of course there were some countries that had higher levels some countries that had lower levels but those differences weren't particularly severe so th- this is a problem everywhere the, the nature of it does vary of course so in in latin america i remember i was in latin america and doing this work, I was in Chile and a story broke in the news in my native Australia about a, a well-known TV presenter who'd been hosting some awards and someone had kissed her uh, you know, t- twice on the cheek on stage and she'd been uncomfortable about that and then made some public comment about feeling uncomfortable. And 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 to me that was a really good example of the cultural relativism of this because I was in Chile where everyone kisses each other on the t- cheek twice except obviously <laughs> during COVID, um, and so I was discussing that with them. But that doesn't mean that I mean, obviously there's some red lines. There are some things that are not okay in any culture. But otherwise, yes, of course, culture matters and. So, you know, if you're a domestic organisation, then, you know, you need to address this, uh, you know, in that cultural context. The challenge is for multinational firms, and there's a lot of big international firms with offices around the world, many of which we worked with on this campaign, you know, they have this real challenge. And and I think the balance there is, is, you know, allowing sort of some international pressure to push for change but equally being responsive to, to the local context. And I think that the second point is... I don't feel that anywhere in the world has fixed this and I don't feel that anywhere hasn't, I mean, I, we only went to 30, 30 cities across six continents, so I can't claim to speak for every country. But everywhere I went, th- 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 there, there was a journey towards change that had begun, you know, at differing stages. And and that's a nonlinear journey. And what I mean by that is in some parts of the world, I was often asked about London and New York, you know they're two legal hubs, global legal hubs, and so there's a lot of sort of thinking and perception well, they must have dealt with this and and that's not not the case i mean obviously a lot of london and new york law, New York law firms are very advanced on this topic, but there's a lot of problems and you know you only need to look at the, the legal news every week and you, you know you see more and more allegations and cases coming forward and and so there were, you know, really interesting innovations that have been adopted in, in all different jurisdictions that n- perhaps hadn't been adopted in London or New York and and vice versa. So, you know, to me, this is a global challenge. It It looks somewhat differently locally, but, you know, it, it's not as if, you know, we're all at different stages on an identical path. We can learn from each other and we can learn from different cultural contexts.
2: Absolutely. And I'm also curious, as you've been out there talking about this to different folks in different cultures. Is there different willingnesses to talk about it, right? And different willingness to get into exploring the topic, depending on culture, region, et cetera.
0: There is definitely. And, and, you know, there were some parts of the world that were really keen to talk about this and others where it was seen as more taboo. Uh, Paradoxically, I think that you know, that doesn't always line up with where you'd expect. And it also doesn't necessarily align with the ability to sort of progress change. So, you know, to to stay with the the Chile example, Chile is quite a a culturally and socially conservative uh, Latin American country. And so, I think there was a bit of shock with the openness that we were having these conversations. So, you know, we hosted a public event at the offices of the biggest law firm in Chile, co-hosted with the Chilean Bar Association, you know, 100 lawyers in the room, and and a number of them remarked to me afterwards just how unusual it was to be having this public conversation about this taboo issue. And, And in a way, that gave it more impact that we were having this conversation. Conversely, in the US... I I think we struggled to cut through to an extent because the Me Too movement had obviously been discussed and reverberated around that there was almost some Me Too fatigue uh, and that, I think, made it harder to engage people because there'd there'd been a sort of switching off to to this problem. Now, the problem hasn't gone away. You know, the Me Too movement has helped. It, It hasn't fixed the problem. So we need to keep talking about it and keep taking concrete steps. But I think certainly my my anecdotal observation in the US was it was harder to get that buy-in and that cut through. It's interesting
2: the fact that there'd been so much focus on it makes it harder, right? Makes us feel like, hey, we're done with this already. We fixed it, which is certainly not the case. And I think there's some danger in that.
0: Yeah. And we see, I mean, just in Australia right now, we had a high profile case of a very senior Australian former judge uh, there was some reporting in in the major newspaper that he had um, sexually harassed some of his junior associates uh, some time ago. That was you know, front page news for a week. you know for the following week, there was a lot of momentum, a lot of talk on this issue. And just in the last that was probably a month ago, in the last week or two, I've noticed that the momentum has started to dip. Now, on one hand, there's, I think, merit to that because we need to move beyond individuals. I mean, his conduct was deplorable, but, but he is only one of, of many. We need to focus on the systemic problem and the structural problem, not just the, 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 the bad apples. Um, but I do worry that we see these you know, big incidents, there's a lot of attention, and then we sort of move on to the next thing in the news cycle and we forget we haven't really move that much further down the road in achieving cultural change.
2: But first, have you guys ever struggled to gain traction driving paid traffic while it seems like your competitors are just having a lot more success? If so, then you're going to love what I put together for you. I mean, how about a free analysis of you versus your top three competitors to gain clarity around what is really working and what isn't and where the opportunities are? Does that sound good? Well, I've partnered with some of the best in the paid traffic business to create inflection marketing. I only partner with the best, no one has more experience. These guys have been doing it since 2001 and they've been helping companies win paid traffic across all channels including Google, Microsoft and Facebook, Instagram and YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter and Amazon. And here's the best part, for anyone who sets up a consultation appointment, we'll provide you with a free competitive analysis comparing your paid per click advertising versus your competitors. Looking at things like messaging, keywords, volume and cost per click. And there's no obligation for this. It'll give you the foundation that you need to succeed, whether you decide to work with us or not. So to learn more about how we can help you take your digital marketing game to the next level and drive a true inflection in your paid traffic, as well as get your complimentary competitive analysis, go to gregjrice.com backslash inflection. That's gregjrice.com backslash inflection to schedule a quick discussion to see if there may be a fit here or not. So with that, let's dive into our interview. So if I'm somebody who feels like, uh, you know, they've been sexually harassed or made uncomfortable or bullied, what's the best way for me to kind of speak up and communicate that to the organization to try to improve my situation, but also to drive change?
0: Uh, I think, you know, we can never put the onus on the target of this behavior to speak up. Now in an ideal world, they would feel comfortable to speak up. And a lot of companies are investing uh, money and time and expertise in flexible reporting channels, so anonymous reporting, uh, app-based reporting platforms. You know, there's a number of technological solutions. Some law firms that I worked with, they'd realised that people just weren't comfortable going to HR. And so they'd try to, you know, some firms had split off part of HR that was independent and and just dealt with complaints. Others had sort of I- empowered people at different levels of the organisation as sort of informal uh, people that you could report to who would then run it up the line. Uh, if you feel comfortable going to, to someone in your organization and talking about this, you know, I think that's important. And a lot of people who did our survey, which was anonymous, said that it was the first time they'd told anyone about what they'd experienced mm-hmm. and that it had been helpful for them to have that channel. And so you know, I think, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that speaking up can be empowering. But people don't speak up and we have a lot of evidence on the barriers to speaking up and and often the the backlash that people face when they speak up. So I think, and and maybe this is your next question, but, you know, as importantly if not more importantly is, I mean, obviously prevention, but if we're just focusing on when when incidents occur, it's bystanders speaking up. So, you know, I think one of the most powerful things all of us can do to achieve change is call things out when we see that, see it. And you know, that doesn't have to be right in the moment. You know, some of us might not feel comfortable for whatever reason. Ideally, if we saw you know, a colleague yelling at a junior, you know, we'd say, hey, Fred, like, that's not appropriate in this workplace. Or, or you can have a conversation with Fred afterwards and then go and speak to the, the target of the behaviour, et cetera. You know, there's, there's a whole lot of ways you can do that, but I think that the impetus and the focus needs to be on every single one of us having a role in this change. And and from the bottom of the organization to the very top, all of us can call things out that we don't think are okay.
2: Yeah, and that was going to be my next question, right? So how, <laughs> thinking about it, uh, well, first of all, I assume you saw in the data that a lot of folks are aware of it happening, um, even if it hasn't happened to them. And then talk about the importance of how they can speak up and communicate that to the organization and make a difference. So, I appreciate you covering that ahead of time for me.
0: Our, our data definitely showed <laughs> that you know, p- people witness this, right? Of course, some of this conduct happens uh, alone in rooms with no witnesses, but most of it happens when there are people around. And I guess collectively, our biggest failing as a profession, and I mean, law is not unique uh, as society, is that we, we, we let this go unchecked i mean it, it's, a, it's become a somewhat cliched quote but it, it's been said that the standard you walk past is the standard that you're prepared to accept and i think you know those words ring really true in this context if you see something if you let it go and you don't intervene or you don't report it afterwards or you don't seek out the the target or the victim of the conduct and make sure they're okay if you just walk by and turn a blind eye you're complicit in the behavior of, of, you know, of course, you're not the perpetrator, but you're complicit. Absolutely. And so, so to put that in a more empowering way, I appreciate that's somewhat negative. Um, <laughs> the flip side of that is every single one of us has an opportunity and an obligation, I would say, to achieve change and to contribute to that change by calling things out when we see them. Yeah, I like the empowering version, but both versions are powerful for sure. Um, any
2: other uh, any other big takeaways from the research or from the conversations that you've had um, that would make sense to share with folks?
0: There's no easy answer. You know, this mm-hmm. is human nature. This is a, a a deeply ingrained societal cultural problem. You know, there there are aspects of the law that probably exacerbate this in, in law as, as one case study profession. But uh, it, it's not as if lawyers are perfect human beings through school and university and then they enter the legal profession and they become bullies or they become harassers. You know, this is a societal problem. and And the corollary of that is this is really hard to address. And I think there's often we search for easy answers and there are not easy answers. This is we need to pull on a hundred different levers within our within our team, within our organisation, within our profession, within our country, our societal context. All of which will, will go some small way to achieving change. You know, so to give an example, alcohol is often uh, associated with incidents of sexual harassment. So some law firms have grappled with well. You know, how do you restrict alcohol? Some firms have, you know, stopped providing alcohol entirely. I mean, there's other issues there about mental health and well-being and, and um overuse of alcohol in the legal profession as well. But you know, to focus on, on sexual harassment, you know, we can get rid of the booze. That's not a silver bullet. You know, the, the, the harassment will happen elsewhere. That doesn't mean that taking steps to ensure responsible consumption of alcohol is not useful and worthwhile. It is, but we can't think that once we've ticked that box, we've fixed the problem. You know, we've got to tick 100 boxes and then live that every day to achieve change. And, you know, that's hard. Change is not easy. Change is not inevitable, but it is possible. And, and I, I think, you know, to me, the, the inspiring and uplifting part of this journey has been speaking to thousands of people around the world who are committed to achieving change. You know, I saw the most fantastic initiatives at all levels of the profession, from law school, you know, to senior judges, uh, all of whom are committed to ensuring that our workplaces are safe and supportive and inclusive for everyone. That's a challenging task and it'll take a lot of work, um, but we can achieve it if we try hard enough. So uh, I guess the message is we, we have to try.
2: I think that that's definitely inspiring the response that you've seen. You know, kind of a corollary for me as you were talking about the societal issues is I think that there's just an underpinning really around the world that being a good leader is is something to aspire to, and that's true. But it's almost something you're born with, and if you know, and so we're all feeling like we should be good leaders, and we're feeling bad about it if we're not, right? And there's just. Uh, there's maybe not the understanding that leadership is really hard and that we need to develop a skill set to do it really well and therefore you know we lead how we have been led which is often the wrong way through bullying sexual harassment etc and and there's a lot of learning that needs to happen but first we have to accept that most of us aren't good leaders to begin with and that that's maybe a hard reflection to look at
0: I agree entirely, and no, I mean to an extent. I'm a leader. You know, I supervise uh, several people in my team, and I often thought as I went around the world talking about this, how how much you know we have to practice what we preach. And mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a born leader. I'm I probably sometimes aren't, I'm not the best boss. Uh, I'm not the best supervisor, and so I think all of us have the responsibility to continually improve. And I guess the, the final thing I wanted to say is, um, you know. Men, particularly, you know, sexual harassment isn't a a women's issue. Uh, Some of your listeners may think it's odd that, you know, the IBA had a man lead this campaign. Partly that was coincidental because this was the project that I was working on, and there you go. Uh, And obviously, we had a lot of uh, amazing women collaborate with us on this campaign. But sexual harassment isn't a women's issue, bullying isn't a women's issue. These things do disproportionately impact women. That's a problem. All of us are responsible for fixing it and men have to be cognizant both about the impact we have and the fact that our voice can be important in this, but we also need to ensure and empower female voices and and, and underrepresented voices in general. And I think that's a a really hard balance to get right. And I often thought on this campaign, that dilemma of the fact that I'm male, I haven't been sexually harassed, my ability to advocate you know, is therefore different, and in some ways, my voice is is it resonates differently. Uh, and I think it's about ensuring that men step up on this issue because it's really important. We do because the data shows that overwhelmingly, it's it's men who perpetrate this conduct. Unfortunately, we need to step up, and we need to ensure that in stepping up, we don't take away from the the voice of women and other underrepresented groups.
2: Sure. Absolutely. So just a few questions i like to ask everybody who I have on the show to shift topics a little bit. The first is around the power of conversations. So I always like to ask my guests if there's one conversation you can point to in your life that had a really big impact on the direction that you ended up taking.
0: Yeah. You I, I foreshadowed this question um, via email and, and I've spent a lot of time today thinking about it. Uh, and, and I'm not sure if, if I have an answer, but you know, maybe the one I'll pick is uh, I did some work in, in Kiribati, which is a, a small island in the Pacific, uh, not related to my, my legal work but but before that. Uh, and it's one of the islands in the world that are most at risk of climate change. And actually, you know, as I speak to you, my, my, my screensaver on my screen is is from this island, a photo I took there. And uh, you know, I was hosted there. I was doing some work for the local football association and, and I was hosted by a, a local iKiribati man um Kiribati, it's sometimes called, but it's actually Kiribati. And I was just I had a lot of conversations with this this man while I was uh, there staying with him over uh, a number of weeks. and Kiribati is the the least developed uh, country in the Pacific. It, it has you know really significant challenges with climate change, with poverty, with obesity, with you know, all, all sorts of challenges. Uh, but I just remember thinking and having these conversations with, with him and, and his family and, and those around him and the generosity they showed. Uh, and, and I think there was, to me, those conversations, I, I learned so much about how important it is that all of us are more generous in, in spirit and in means. I uh, you know, and, and just I remember being shocked when I went back to, to Australia, where I was based at the time, and you know, Australia, an incredibly wealthy country, but probably many of us, and and certainly as a society and as a government, in many ways, we're not very generous. And yet, you know, these people had welcomed a total stranger into their home and and welcomed me with food every night for a week and and shared their stories with me. Probably sounds a bit cliche, but, you know, for, for people that didn't have a lot and are facing, you know, really existential risk due to climate change, the climate crisis... Uh, the generosity they showed me, I, I've sort of tried to, to live by and show others. It's beautiful. I think sometimes we
2: find the greatest generosity and love among the folks who have some of the least, um, which is always something that's fascinated me. So a uh, second question, as you think about all that you've accomplished throughout your career, and it's a lot of things, right? Um, if, if there was one communication skill you could have had in more abundance that would have made it uh, a lot easier for you, what would that have been?
0: I think to to wrap back to some something I said towards the beginning of the conversation, uh, you know, self reflection and and getting being better at understanding how what I say will impact others and how it will resonate. And I think that's a skill I'm still trying to work on. I don't think I'm I'm all that good at it uh, still after a, a many years of trying. But I think all of us need to, and and I certainly need to think more about you know the the way we communicate and. I guess that's, in a way, that's the, the, the other side of the coin. It, it's not, I guess, it's not part of the conversation. It's about stepping back and thinking either preactively or after the fact and reflecting a little bit more on the way what we say will impact people, the way it will land. And, and I mean, it sounds a bit Machiavellian and I don't mean it in that way, but sort of just strategizing a bit more about mm-hmm. the way our communications will make others feel. and And you know, to reduce it to simple Australianism, you know, don't be a dickhead uh, (laughs) is is the, the basic version of it. But I think just reflecting a bit more, I wish throughout my career I'd reflected a bit more on, you know, what I was saying.
2: Yeah. I think part of the challenge is we don't always realize when we're being a dickhead. We don't think we're being a dickhead, but we're perceived no, as exactly. one. exactly. We know? think we're right. <laughs> we think we're right or we think we're being compassionate or understanding and, and really we're missing the boat. Um, so it's about getting that self-awareness and awareness of whoever it is we're communicating with. Um, so final question, who is the best communicator that you know, either know of or know personally? And why do you say that about them?
0: one of the people i've been really fortunate to work with on the iba us2 campaign has been a guy called tin and brady who's the head of inclusion for clifford chance which is a, a major international law firm headquartered in britain and and he led the uh, marriage equality same sex marriage uh, campaign firstly in ireland and then in australia and and uh, won both of the referendums in those countries the only two countries that have passed that law on the basis of uh, national nationwide referendums been very fortunate now to to work with him on this campaign to address bullying and harassment in law and he's just uh, having presented with him seen him speak to, to you know hundreds of rooms around the world you know from groups of you know three or four people to rooms of hundreds his ability to to land a message and he's Irish and I think and I'm half Irish and so because I'm only half Irish and grew up in Australia I don't think I quite have the 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 gift that he has uh, the Irish stereotypical gift of storytelling and he seems to have a story I mean he's obviously done some amazing things in his time but he has a story for every point he wants to make and and you know and and i think sometimes people overdo that right and they try and wrap every message in a story and it comes across as force but with him you know he makes a point it's often simple it's often profound and he'll he'll come up with some amazing way to illustrate it you know whether it's about him door knocking and having a conversation with a, a 92 year old granny in rural ireland or you know whatever it's just these amazing anecdotes and and, and, and I guess through seeing that, I've really reflected on you know, the utility of stories in, in leading change. Uh, and, for example, with our harassment report and our work, you know, we had this data but we also had thousands of stories that people told us and we used those a lot in our report and in our presentations and in our engagement. And in a way, it, it struck me that people, that they resonated with people. And on one hand, that makes sense. But on the other hand, our data should resonate much more. It should horrify people because the, the numbers indicate pervasiveness that a single story doesn't. I, I mean, it's often said that the plural of anecdote isn't data. But it's the stories that, that contribute to this change. And seeing that through Tien and all around the world over the past year, I consider myself you know, truly fortunate to have worked with him uh, and, and, and learned from some of the amazing work he's done. Uh, and I think at the heart of that comes the idea of being a, a compelling communicator.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I always thought, think about what drives true change in folks, and I think it's emotional and the stories connect to the emotion. The data is important as a backdrop and a cont- context and validity to why that story is important. But the story is, I think, what drives the change at the end of the day. So the ability to tell them is powerful. And I'm also part of Irish, but could definitely get better at my storytelling. So something I'm working on every day. But so last question for you, where can folks find more about what you're working on, the report, anything else that you're doing?
0: Sure. So the anyone can go to the International Bar Association website, our report, um, a lot of webinars, videos, uh, information about the campaigns, all freely available online. Um, the report is 130 pages long. So not, not light bedtime reading, um, but uh, you know, it's there. And otherwise, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Kieran, K-I-E-R-A-N, Pender, P-E-N-D-E-R. Uh, and I, I tweet, I think, fairly prolifically about the various uh, things I get up to.
2: Yeah, I can also um, get their football news from you as well, right? And, and a number of different in-depth articles on sports.
0: Yeah, I, I moonlight and my background was as a journalist uh, and, and I still moonlight as a sports writer. I think people who follow me on Twitter must think I'm very eclectic because one <laughs> minute I'm tweeting about diversity in law, the next I'm tweeting about um, football or cycling uh, and then I also do some work as a sort of constitutional law scholar and so I tweet about that. So yeah, very <laughs> eclectic uh, Twitter feed, but, but hopefully uh, someone finds it interesting diversity in sports also could be a fascinating topic.
2: Certainly, uh, you know, from a player level, but then also as you get up into a leadership level, typically you see almost night and day, you know, which is always something that's fascinated me. But, oh, awesome. So thank you so much for your time today. Great conversation. I think um, a lot for folks to think about uh, about how to lead effectively, about how to communicate, and how maybe the messages that they're communicating aren't getting through in the way that they're thinking that they are and being much more sensitive to the impacts that they're having given the way that they're communicating. So thank you for that. Really appreciate your time today. My pleasure.
1: Don't let the momentum stop now. Continue your path towards connecting at another level by joining the communication nation. We'll be discussing today's topics as well as more real-world solutions to transforming your life, personally and professionally, at facebook.com slash groups join the communication nation. Remember, you're only one good conversation away from transforming your business and life, and that conversation starts right here on The Art of Communication.